Oh, thanks so much, friends, for leading us. Thank you for being here. Sounds beautiful indeed. What a gift to sing with you all. Uh, my name is Nelson. If we haven't met, um, it's great to be in this space with you and shouts to those uh, joining via live stream. Uh, this morning, we find ourselves in one of the high points of the church calendar, known as Pentecost Sunday. In some traditions, the Feast of Pentecost. Not having a feast, but someday, perhaps, a feast at Pentecost. And so um, these lovely graphics that our friend Zach Bulick uh, designed for us, this is where we've come so far. So we're not at the end, because the next slide tells us that there's still a whole lot of ordinary time to go before we reach the end of the liturgical year. Uh, so, but Pentecost is the day that comes to, at the end of the Jewish Feast of Weeks, seven weeks after Passover. Penta, of course, meaning 50. In Acts 2, Luke tells us it was, that was the feast day on which the presence of the Holy Spirit was intensified in the midst of the early church gathered in Jerusalem. If you've heard that story before, you know it was a whole thing. God's Spirit was made tangible in some pretty dramatic ways. There was the sound, like the blowing of a mighty wind. Something that looked like tongues of fire came to rest on individuals within the, all of the group of followers of the way as they were most often known. And then those early church folk were suddenly given the ability to speak in many different languages. Even more amazing, perhaps, than the speaking. Jews who weren't part of the church, but were rather from every nation under heaven, according to Luke, were in the city at the time. And they witnessed what was going on, couldn't believe they were hearing their own native tongue being spoken and understanding it completely. And then Peter the apostle gets up and reminds everyone that the prophets told us this would happen. It was a whole thing. We're gonna to touch on Acts 2 again. But this year, as we've been preaching through the church calendar, I've been intrigued to notice which non-narrative texts in particular are linked thematically with these high points in the story, like this one, the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. And so on this particular Sunday within year C, remember the Revised Common Lectionary is actually a three-year cycle in all, a section of Psalm 104 is the Psalm of the day. And that's where I wanna drop anchor this morning. And we'll wonder together at what windows this song of praise might open for us with regard to the meaning of Pentecost. So those verses have been read for us once already, but let's hear the text once more, this time in the New Revised Standard Translation. Psalm 104, beginning at verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There's the sea, great and wide. Creeping things, innumerable, are there. Living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan that you formed to sport in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. 
When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. So this is just a section of a psalm, and this one being a praise song, originally designed for use in congregational worship. It's likely that the entire psalm, all 35 verses, was just considered too long for our modern sensibilities. The, the lectionary as we know it today was created in 1994, even though the church calendar has been around for centuries. But I think it's worth it to just ask what the previous verses were about, even if it's just to give a little nod to the poem's literary integrity. We could summarize the whole of Psalm 104 as a sweeping, magnificent hymn to God the Creator. So after some initial words of praise in Psalm, in verse one, verses two to four list the wonders of the sky. Five to nine continue with appreciation for the earth itself. Verses 10 to 13 celebrate water. Fifth, 14 to 18, vegetation and things that are possible because of it. And 19 to 23, the moon and the sun. So something that you need to appreciate about Psalm 104 as a whole is how it mirrors the creation accounts in Genesis, in the ordering. You can go back and trace and you say, oh, this is similar, I've heard this before. And that's kind of the point. The people of God, we've heard this before, where have we heard this before? And then to just get caught up in that rhythm. The poetry itself is also lovely. It conjures up such beautiful imagery, which we don't often get to consider or let alone take a look at here in the Japanese hall. So through the very limited medium of keynote, we're gonna have a little slideshow. So I'm going to read the vegetation section for us, verses 14 to 18, with some accompanying images. Let's lower the lights. Matt Kingcroft, Dylan, do you mind just hitting the lights where you are? Let's do this right. I'm sorry. I don't have snacks. Well, again, maybe someday. You cause the grass to grow for the cattle. And I just had to do two images of the cattle because how gorgeous is she? Oh my goodness. And plants for people to cultivate to bring forth food from the earth. And wine to gladden the human heart. No. Wait a minute, what? <laughs> I don't know how that got in there. Next slide. Oil to make the face shine. Who doesn't love Jonathan Van Ness? And bread to strengthen the human heart. The trees of the field are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. That's one of my favorites right there. In them, the birds build their nests. The stork has its home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the conies. How cute are conies? All right, we can bring the lights back up. Thank you. 
And spoiler alert, we're going to sing 10,000 Reasons as part of our response time, a song that names the many, many reasons we're invited to bless God with our praise. And we've just seen 12 of them, 12 out of 10,000. So I figured a slideshow might help us feel at least some of the momentum of the psalm, this catalog of wonders that burst through the first 23 verses, so that when we now consider the last 10, there's already some energy some anticipation of what's still to come. So what is left? We're gonna look at three themes within the three remaining sections. And again, our big question being, why is this a Pentecost Sunday text? What does Psalm 104, a praise song, centered on God's work of creation, have to do with Acts 2 and Pentecost? So first part, the sea. Verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. This is nothing less than a call to praise God for biodiversity. The biodiversity that we see in creation extends beyond plants and animals, of course. It's, it's embedded in creation itself from the uniqueness of every snowflake to the specific configuration of each coral sea plant to the iris of every mammal's eye. God makes no two things exactly alike. The created order explodes in diversity, even amid similarity. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you made them all. The complexity and variety of life that we see everywhere bears witness that God's understanding is unsearchable, as the prophet Isaiah puts it. I love how scholar Bonnie Pattison said it. She said, the diversity displayed in God's manifold works is the revelation of God's wisdom in creation. Indeed, God's signature upon this world. Friends, let's not miss the connection that the psalmist is seeing between God's works and God's wisdom, between creation's diversity and the very fingerprint of the divine. The diversity manifested in the church is meant to serve the same purpose as in creation, to reveal the wisdom of God. So fast forward to Ephesians 3, Gentiles included with the Jews as fellow heirs, members of the same body, sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 3, verse 6. Paul explains that this is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. For Paul, in other words, the church reveals God's manifold wisdom by the diversity it displays. Can we catch that? For Paul, the church reveals God's manifold wisdom by the diversity it displays. To flip it upside down, where diversity is missing, God's wisdom is lacking. Return with me briefly to the scene in Acts 2. Sound of wind, tongues of fire, many languages being spoken and understood. Peter standing up and saying, this is that which the prophet Joel spoke. One of the most profound implications of Pentecost is that the wisdom of God transcends 
all the typical human barriers we want to set up to create divisions between people. Language, understanding, race, nationality, sexual orientation, gender identity, and so on. Other passages in scripture encourage us to imagine God's revelation moving out even farther and into the whole of creation. That's why Psalm 104 is included in the Pentecost texts. It reminds us that human beings are not the only creatures in God's kingdom. The psalmists tell us that God's speech gets translated beyond our human tongues and ears, both to and through everything that has been made. Rocks and trees, skies and seas, cattle and plants, storks and conies, mountain goats and porcupines. All creatures of our God and King have their place in the choir. Yeah? The last verse in our psalm, bless the Lord, O my soul, is sung by all the works of God, each in its own voice, each in its own way. One writer I said uh, that I love said it like this. If translation is the Spirit's primary Pentecost gift, then we who persevere in translation must learn to speak and to hear more languages than all the God-fearing people of Jerusalem. Love that. In other words, we divine image bearers to whom the Spirit has been given are continually invited to be translators. And as anyone who's tried to learn a new language knows, the work of translation requires the practice of listening. At that Pentecost feast in Jerusalem, God's voice came through a great wind. Listen, can you hear it now? Listen to the sounds of the wind. Listen to the beating wings of birds. Listen to the rustling trees. Listen to the creaks and groans of building floors. Listen to the pops of expanding woodwork as your home breathes in the warmth of summer. Listen to the mountain streams carving their way down a hillside. Listen to the still lakes wrapped in morning mist. Listen to the gravel beneath your bicycle tires. Listen. All creation sings God's praise. All of it. If the spirit can speak through tongues of flame, it can most definitely speak through all things that the fire of creation has brought into being. So we earthlings, we might speak in a couple hundred languages, but the earth and everything in it echoes the divine name in a trillion tongues. Verses 25 and 26, one more time. There is the sea, great and wide, creeping things innumerable are there, living things, both small and great. And there go the ships and Leviathan that you formed to sport in it. Now, it's unlikely that many of the children of Israel who chanted this psalm when it first was written had actually seen anything like the expanses of water that we call seas and oceans today. But the image of the sea held immense power in ancient Near Eastern understanding. In other psalms, you might remember some of these, the sea is the watery chaos from which creation arose. Or the chaos that humans in distress sink into. Oh Lord, 
I'm deep in it. Your, your waves, they, they're breakers. They, they, they uh, crash over me. Get me out of here. That sort of idea. So it's the watery chaos that creation was sort of emerged from, or if you look at it the other way, humans sink into it. So the sea in the ancient Israelite imagination is a wild, trackless, orderless void. In this psalm, there's no hint of that. The sea has been domesticated. Instead of a primeval chaos, here the sea is a vast, teeming medium chock full of living things, small and great. Humans are there too in their ships. And in this text, there's no hint of danger. In fact, God's power over this realm is so comprehensive that even Leviathan, the great and elsewhere treacherous sea monster, is like a pet frolicking among the waves. You didn't know God had a pet dragon, did you? So the crescendo is rising now. The imagery of the sea, the manifold works of God that reveal the wisdom of God now build toward the next theme, which is the gift of life itself. Verse 27 again. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. This part reminds us that after the giver gives the gift of life, the giver does not retreat into the background, not at all. The giver, creator, is seen in the psalmist's imagination as a constant and essential and providential presence, not to mention a personal one. God personally feeds the sea creatures by hand. They in turn respond to God, recognizing creator's provision and looking to God to give them their food. They depend personally on God in every way. Conversely, when God's face is hidden or turned away, they are dismayed. When they die, it's because God removes their breath. And when God's ruach, Hebrew word for breath, wind, spirit, is sent forth, they are created. Now, this psalm does not explicitly reference human participation in the care of creation, but that doesn't mean we're off the hook. Since it says, these all look to you, God, doesn't mean we just wash our hands, point at Psalm 104 in our Bibles and see, see, God's in control. I don't have to worry about it. Creation care, not my job. No, 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 no. We take the whole of scripture's testimony as to who we are as humans, what we're here to do, and what the incarnation of Jesus means in terms of our responsibility to embody the divine image on earth, here's the way we ought to read this. When it says, these all look to you and you give them food in due season, we should say yes. Because all God's creatures are dependent in this way and God sees them and cares for them, we should too. When it says, when you open your hand and they are filled with good things, we should say yes, because God acts in open-handed ways toward all God has made, we should too. Because the result of God's generosity is that creation is filled with good things, 
we better be actively engaged in leaving the world better than we found it. Our track record on that front is not the best. When it says, when you hide your face, they are dismayed, we should be asking ourselves, what is the cost of our ignorance? On that note, let's be clear. The psalmist isn't saying God takes pleasure in hiding from creation, removing breath from creatures. This is ancient Hebrew poetry. It's a literary device called parallelism. So it's saying simply that because God's constant presence and activity means life and provision, the opposite is also true. If God didn't act in characteristically generative ways toward all God had created, the result would be dismay and death. In his poem based on Psalm 104, Lawrence Weeder imagines these verses beautifully. Creation grazes from your open hand. God, never turn away. Without the breath, all's clay and dead. I love that, how he forms it in, the word, in a petition. God, never turn away. Which is all the more reason we, as created beings who also have agency in these matters, ought to be concerned that we are acting in ways toward creation that the Spirit would have us act. It's all connected. All connected. One place in Scripture where we see this intersection of creation and human beings and our collective dependence on the Spirit, even in our praying, is Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the daughters and sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the daughters and sons of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as is necessary. Isn't that comforting? But the very that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. Commenting on her own translation of this text, Dr. Will Gaffney says this, the Psalm 104 is rich with the majesty of creation. And in Romans eight, that same creation waits, longing for us humanity to live into the fullness of our glory as the children of God. That same mighty fire swirling spirit prays for us to live up to and into our full potential like the rest of creation. Even when we do not know the words to pray, indeed language as we understand it is insufficient. The spirit intercedes, advocates, in sounds, size beyond our capacity to interpret. So love that. So here's a spiritual practice for the summer months. Let creation disciple you. Let creation disciple you. 
when you get outside, whether it's a walk at lunchtime or through a park downtown on the beach when you're on vacation, when you get outside, be outside. Leave your phone in your pack, in your pocket, better yet, your desk or your office or at home. Get a camera that's not your phone. If you can get out there to catch a sunset, like really watch the sunset. One of my favorite moments at church retreat, I don't even know if I said this on a Sunday after, but um, it was in the evening on the Saturday night and all of our youth were playing their wide game, flashlights kind of through the trees. And I went out in the middle of the field with my friend Greg Gillespie and we just looked up at the stars for a few minutes. I could see stars, it's incredible. And then our necks got really sore and I realized why people lay down usually when they look at the stars and we went and caught the fire. Look at the stars. If you can get out there to, on a hike near a waterfall, a rushing river, listen to the sound of the water, even lapping on a shore. Learn the names of five species of birds that frequent your neighborhood. Plant something in soil, tend it, watch it grow. I'm pretty sure you can still plant arugula, maybe, spinach, beets, carrots, right? Late planting. Any gardeners in the house? Who, who can be a consultant for others of us that want to plant something? No one? Terry's upstairs. Yes, Melody. Okay, Melody right here. I see that hand. Be ready. They're going to come for you because everyone's going to do what the pastor suggested to do. So plant something. James McTire once again. That nature and its creator put forth so much effort at communicating praise only to have it fall on distracted human ears must be particularly insulting. We humans are not nature's masters. At best, we are cohorts. In tragedy, it's victims. And at worst, we are destroyers. As in human communications, when we forsake negotiation with nature in favor of brute force, all parties are injured. Learning to communicate with creation takes time. Listening takes work. Uniting in praise takes translation. And again, translation at its core is an act of humility. Think of any language study you've been involved in. Enormous effort. Hours of discipline and practice. Even once you become fluent, there's still gaps of translation from one language to another that demand nuanced skill, fresh familiarity, and agile thinking. And this is what all relationships are like, aren't they? This isn't just the work of translation, this is just life with humans, other people and beings. They require skill and familiarity and thought. Roommates, right? Children and parents, marriage partners, church communities and pastors, bosses and employees. If any of us expect to keep communication alive, and fruitful. We need to dedicate, dedicate ourselves to the art of translation. I'm sorry, what did you really mean when you said that? The intensification of the spirit at Pentecost it was miraculous, but it wasn't magical. It took some doing for the disciples to convince folks that they weren't drunk that they were truly hearing the word of God. It took patience on the part of the listeners to discern the truth. So it is with us. If we hope to move from being spectators to friends of nature, 
translators of its praise and partners in its glory. So as we engage in this communing, listening, uniting with creation and one another work, may we also be discipled into greater awareness of our dependence on God, the one who is good and faithful in all things. Brings us to our last section. The psalm ends by erupting into a song about God's glory. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Again, notice how personal it is. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to God while I have my being. We are all the I here. The invitation is to be caught up in gratitude and awe and wonder and yes, joy too. The invitation is to serve the glory of God by not allowing creation's witness to become muted. The invitation is to let creation's majesty become doxology, to add our voices to the choir. And again, when we consider the whole of scriptural witness, it reminds us the whole trajectory of things, of history, is music. We see it everywhere. Revelation, the heavenly chorus moves from praising God as creator of all things in chapter four, verse one, or 11, to singing a new song that celebrates the one who redeems people from every tribe and people and language and nation in five, verse nine. Both songs remind us that the biodiversity of God's works, this manifestation of God's wisdom are worthy of praise. Verse 34, praise, that our meditation may be pleasing to the Lord. You know that word meditate in the Hebrew understanding, it's to chew on, to reflect deeply, to look intently, to really see, to ponder. So, some invitations for us this Pentecost Sunday, and then we'll come to the table together. May your meditation upon the vast glory of creation pray, please God, and may it do a healing, restorative work on your soul. May your translation also be pleasing to God. May you take joy in listening and learning and letting the Spirit help you pray, whether you use words or not. And may we raise our voices to declare solidarity with all creation, recognizing our important place in it, but also acknowledging we're not the only creatures in God's kingdom. Amen. Mm -hmm.